Our Heavenly Father, we are gathered here today to give ourselves to You. To worship You with our hearts, with our bodies, with our minds, with our voices. Oh, Heavenly Father, You are a good and gracious God showing mercy to us through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised King and Savior of the nations, the light who brings light into the world, the One who was crucified for us, bearing the punishment for our sin that we might be forgiven. We worship You in Him. And we worship You by the power of Your Holy Spirit who is the Lord and Giver of life who like the wind blows where He wills, who has poured out on us like rain to give us new life, to refresh us, who anoints us like oil to give us gifts for service and ministry in Your kingdom. O triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one God, reveal Your glory to us today. Bless us. Fill this place with Your glorious presence. Fill each of our hearts with love and peace. For You are great. You are wise. You are gracious. You alone are God. You are our shield and our protector, the lifter of our heads. You are our hope and the One in whom we trust. Amen. Let us pray. O oh, great God, may Your Gospel come to us today as Your power unto our salvation. O oh, God, we pray that today we may grow in our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might trust in Him alone for our salvation fully and completely. That we might grow in our understanding of what it means to follow Him, to deny ourselves and take up our crosses each day. And Father, we pray that today we may grow in our understanding of what it means to not be ashamed of Christ, to not be ashamed of His cross, to not be ashamed of who we are as His followers, but that we might boldly speak His truth and live it out accordingly. This we pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, this passage in Mark 8 is typically read as a text about discipleship. And it certainly is about discipleship, and that's what I'm going to talk about uh, this morning. But before we do that, I need to do something else, lest it be misunderstood. First and foremost, this text is not about disciples of Jesus. It is about Jesus Himself. Jesus is the one who has done the things described here. Jesus is the one who denies Himself. Who takes up the cross. Jesus is the one who loses His life and then finds it. We're to follow Jesus. We are to imitate Jesus. But our self-denial... And our cross-bearing do not accomplish what the self-denial and cross-bearing of Jesus accomplished. Look how Martin Luther put it. Luther said, you should accustom yourself to distinguish carefully between the suffering of Christ and all other suffering. 
and know that His is a heavenly suffering and ours is worldly. That His suffering accomplishes everything while ours does nothing except that we be conformed to Christ and that therefore the suffering of Christ is the suffering of a Lord whereas ours is the suffering of a servant. See, Luther, the great hero of the Reformation, he is exactly right. If you don't make that distinction between Christ's suffering and your suffering, between Christ's cross and our crosses, you're either going to become arrogant thinking that your cross-bearing is what really accomplishes your salvation, or you're going to be despondent because you're going to think that the crosses God lays on you are really punishment for sin. Neither is the case. See, Jesus' cross has already accomplished our salvation. There's nothing left to earn, nothing left left to accomplish. And not only that, but Jesus on the cross has already endured punishment for our sin. There's no wrath left for us to undergo. Every drop of God's wrath was quenched there on the cross. Why then, we might ask, why then do we have to practice self-denial and cross-bearing? If Jesus has already won God's favor for us, if there's no wrath left for us to endure, why self-denial? Why cross-bearing? Well, it's because, as Luther said, disciples must be conformed to the Master. We must be conformed to the image of Christ. His likeness must be reproduced in us. That is indeed the whole goal of our salvation. The ultimate design of God in saving us is to make us like Christ, to make us mature like Jesus. That's the purpose of life. That's the meaning of life. To be like Jesus. To think like Jesus. To act like Jesus. To love like Jesus. To speak like Jesus. To serve like Jesus. To deny ourselves like Jesus. To bear crosses like Jesus. Jesus doesn't require anything of us. He hasn't already done Himself first. To become like Jesus, we must follow Jesus in the way of self-denial and cross-bearing. And this passage shows us what that means. But before we get to that, before we take Christ as our example, we must remember He is our Savior. Because He is our Savior, He is our example. Because He is our Savior, we seek to imitate Him. But we don't want to reverse that. See, the cross is not only a history-changing event, it's also a life-changing event. The cross not only inaugurated the kingdom of God, but it serves as a paradigm for life in that kingdom. So what Jesus did on the cross changes history and brings about salvation and inaugurates the kingdom of God. But because it does all of those things, it also serves as a template, a pattern of life for those who are in that kingdom. Now, it's interesting to see how all this unfolds in Mark chapter 8. As soon as Jesus is identified by Peter as the promised Messiah, he begins to unpack what Messiahship means. And he unfolds the, the meaning of Messiahship in terms of suffering. Not what Peter and the disciples expected. And so Peter rebukes Jesus. He figures... Maybe Jesus is having a crisis of faith. Uh, maybe Jesus is, is starting to doubt and He needs encouragement. You know, Peter 
hears Jesus talking about suffering, he thinks, well, well, maybe, you know, Jesus is thinking when he goes to Jerusalem, his mission is actually going to fail. It's not going to happen. He really is the Messiah. And so Peter rebukes him. Peter thinks he's doing a good thing. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Messianic King, which is true. But Peter's view of the King and the kingdom he will bring in has no room for a Messiah who suffers. And so Peter rebukes Jesus. But Jesus isn't having any of it. He doesn't need correction. This isn't because he's had a crisis of faith or gotten suddenly pessimistic. Jesus rebukes Peter because he sees Peter putting in front of him the same temptation that Satan did in the wilderness. The temptation to seize a kingdom, to seize a crown without having to deny self or go to the cross. And so Peter, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of men, not the things of of God. In other words, Peter, you're being controlled by a worldly wisdom, not heavenly wisdom, not divine wisdom. But it's interesting the language that Jesus used here. He says, Peter, get behind me. Get behind me. The same language that's already been used when Jesus called Peter to be a disciple in the first place. Why does Jesus say to Peter, get behind me? Because that's right where a disciple belongs behind Jesus, following Him on the way. The way where? The way to the cross. Because there at the cross, the mind and wisdom of God will be revealed. The cross will show us a God who is a God who denies Himself. A God who is humble. A God who serves and who sacrifices. And that's what Peter doesn't get. Now we can look at Peter and, you know, throughout this section in Mark's Gospel, the disciples just seem so dense and, and so stubborn and they just don't get it. Do you ever read, you know, you, you find yourself reading the Scriptures and you just get frustrated with the characters in the Bible and you think, how could you be so stupid? How could you be so dumb? How could you miss it? <laughs> again and again, we, 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 you know, we see people doing dumb things in the Scriptures. And we especially see that with the disciples, and we especially see it here in this part of Mark's Gospel. They keep getting it wrong. They keep misunderstanding. You know, throughout this part of Mark's Gospel, the disciples just can't seem to get it right. In fact, it seems as though what Mark is doing is really driving a wedge between Jesus and His disciples. Driving a wedge between Jesus and the disciples, showing us the gap between where Jesus is and how He's thinking and the disciples and how they're thinking. And because of this wedge that's been driven, now we as the readers have to choose. We have to choose. Will we think like the disciples according to a worldly wisdom, a, a kingdom that's all about power and glory and putting your enemies down? Or will we learn to think like Jesus? and view the kingdom in terms of self-denial and cross-bearing and sacrifice. That's the wedge that's driven here. Will we think like God or like the world? What will it be? I think it's easy to get frustrated with the disciples because we know what they should have done at this point. But before we're too hard on them, I want you to consider how the words of Jesus would have, would have sounded to the disciples in their original context when Jesus actually spoke these words. The disciples knew that Jesus would eventually make a move on Jerusalem. 
If He's the Christ, if He's the Messiah, the promised King, then He's got to go to the kingly city. If He's royalty, the Christ, He's got to go to the royal city of Jerusalem and make His move there. And they figured, I'm sure they were all thinking this way, they figured that when they all got to Jerusalem, they would take up swords. And they would inflict suffering on the Romans and the other infidels. But instead here, Jesus talks about going to Jerusalem and not taking up a sword. He says, I'll take up a cross. Indeed, all of us will take up crosses. Which means they're not going to be inflicting suffering on God's enemies. They're going to be enduring suffering at the hands of God's enemies. See, how would they have understood the cross? The cross was something that was not spoken of in polite society uh, by the Romans. The cross was invented by the Romans as a form of punishment, the ultimate form of punishment. And it served as a symbol of Rome's domination, a sign of the might and power of the Roman Empire. The cross was a sign. Rome is in charge. Rome has power and we will execute our enemies We will crucify those who oppose us. We will steamroll them and humiliate them. Death by cross was feared throughout the Roman Empire. It was so excruciating, so humiliating, that actually Romans wouldn't crucify their own citizens. If you were a Roman citizen and you did all kinds of wrong things, you might be punished in various ways, but you were exempt from the threat of crucifixion. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of Rome's enemies, for the worst criminals and rebels against the empire. It's the most terrible form of death imaginable. The the, the worst kind of death sentence you can imagine. What the Romans would do is when someone was condemned to die by crucifixion, that person would be forced to carry the cross piece Uh, a beam of wood, he would be forced to carry that cross piece to the tree on which he would be nailed, to the tree on which he would be crucified. Carrying that cross piece, usually through the city streets, uh, past the crowds, was a shameful precursor to the even greater shame that would come when you were actually nailed to the cross. And again, it was Rome's way of saying We're in charge, and this is what we do to our enemies. We inflict this kind of humiliation and shame and suffering. Worst way to die, imagine. When Jesus starts talking about the cross and taking up a cross and and, and going to Jerusalem and being killed, He could not have possibly described a future more at odds with the disciples' vision for the kingdom. He could not have possibly described a future more contrary to the disciples' expectations. The cross, that's for false messiahs. That's for those messianic pretenders. You know, the cross is what happens when somebody claims to be Messiah and their claims turn out to be false. That guy gets crucified. The real Messiah is not going to end up on a tree crucified by the Romans, he's going to defeat the Romans. He won't be crucified by Rome. He'll overcome Rome. See, we read a passage like this and we immediately take the cross as a metaphor. The disciples couldn't have done that. For them, it was nothing but literal. Jesus is talking about getting crucified. And that's why they're so confounded and shocked. Jesus, they've just affirmed Jesus as Messiah... 
And He's affirmed them in that. And then Jesus goes on to predict His own defeat. It just doesn't add up. Now sure, Jesus does throw in here that He's going to rise again on the third day. We shouldn't miss that. But I think the disciples probably had already tuned out. As soon as Jesus started talking about being killed, as soon as Jesus started talking about the cross, that's all they could hear. The cross. No, it can't be. But see, Jesus doesn't stop with just talking about His own cross and and how we've got to take up a cross. He goes on and describes a paradox in verses 35-37. to The paradox of His kingdom. The paradox that Jesus Himself will embody and that His followers must embody as well. Now you need to understand with these verses, verses 35-37, to there is a bit of a translation problem here with these verses. When we try to move from the Greek into English, we have a problem. The word that is translated as life in verse 35 is the same word that's translated as soul in verses 36 and 37. That Greek word can mean being physically alive, and it can also mean the self that survives physical death. And so maybe the best way to read it is just to plug in both meanings together. Jesus says something like this. For whoever desires to save his life soul will lose it, but whoever loses his life soul for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own life soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his life soul? Now what is Jesus saying here? I'll unravel the paradox a little bit. Jesus is saying to cling to life in this world is to forfeit life in the world to come. To make this world and the stuff of life in this world your priority is to lose out on life in the world to come. Jesus says those who lose their life in this world because of their loyalty to Him and to His Gospel will find true life in the world to come. That's the paradox. That's the contrast Jesus is drawing here. Jesus goes on, He says, even if you were to gain the whole world, think about this from the disciples' perspective again in its original context, even if you were to win in your revolt against Rome, even if you did conquer Rome and you had a Jewish Caesar and the whole world empire became yours, even if you gained the whole world, what good would it do you if you lost out on life in the world to come. Wouldn't that be a terrible exchange? A terrible trade to make? A terrible investment? It would be like putting everything you've got in the stock market right before it crashes. It's a terrible investment to make. What Jesus is getting at here is this. What value do you really put on Me? How do you weigh My value, My worth, compared to everything else? And Jesus is saying, look, if you don't make Me your supreme value, your greatest treasure, that which you would gladly give up everything else in order to have, then you are wasting your life. Your life is going to be lost. Jesus here is saying the way to enter into the life of His kingdom is to die. Life comes through death. If you just live for yourself, you'll lose yourself. But if you lose yourself living for Christ, not only will you gain Christ, but you'll get everything else thrown in as well. Now, 
this way to life through death, this fact that to truly live is to live in Christ and with Christ, which means you have to die with Christ. Jesus talks about this throughout the Gospels. The Apostle Paul picks up on it and talks about it throughout his letters. Listen to how Paul describes the Christian life. He constantly describes the Christian life in terms of death. So in Galatians 2, Paul says, Through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. Later, Galatians 6, he says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Colossians 3, he says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Romans 6, he links this to baptism. He says, we've been baptized into Christ's death. And in this baptism into Christ's death, we have died to sin. In Philippians 3, he says, all the things that were gained to me, and Paul had many things he could have counted in his favor, many things that were gained to him, all the things that were gained to me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. See how that echoes this language here? That I may gain Christ to be found in Him. Paul goes on, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. That's how Paul describes the Christian life. It is a living death. For Paul, the Christian life is supposed to tell a story. Now, everybody's life tells a story. For Paul, the Christian's life is supposed to tell a story. For the Christian, that story has got to correspond to the story of the Gospel. The story of the cross. Again and again, Paul describes Christian experience in terms of death and resurrection in Jesus and with Jesus. That's the whole pattern of the Christian life. I die so that Christ might live in me. The old me dies. The me that is self-centered and self-absorbed and self-obsessed and self-directed. The old me dies so that a new me that is Christ-centered and Christ-directed might live. John Calvin got at this when he said the whole Christian life is a life of self-denial. He said that's the sum of the Christian life. Self-denial. It's not just denial of this or that, comfort or pleasure or luxury. It's a denial of the very self. Calvin described the Christian life in terms of what he called mortification and vivification. Mortification, the putting to death of self and sin in order that we might vivify and quicken this new life that we have in Christ. See, the point's not just to wound your sin. Kill it. It's to nail it to the cross. So many Christians try a sin management program. You know, just kind of manage my sin, keep it in check, don't let it get too out of control because that would embarrass me. Now, Jesus says you've got to take your sin and nail it to the cross. But somebody might say, wow, this sounds really tough. You know, is it salvation by grace? Why well, let's talk about what we have to do. Well, yes, salvation is by grace. And grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. Grace doesn't mean you don't have to work. Rather, the point again and again in Scripture is that grace empowers our work. The grace of the cross not only forgives sin, 
It destroys sin. It not only cancels out the debt of your sin, it also dethrones sin so it no longer has absolute power over you. See, this this message of the cross, as Jesus talks about it here, as Paul unfolds it in his letters, the message of the cross, it was radically countercultural in the first century. It's radically countercultural in the 21st century. It is a direct affront. It was a direct affront to the disciples and their sensibilities. It's a direct affront to us and our modern American sensibilities as well. Think about our culture for just a minute. You know, advertising, popular music, what's out there, you know, the stories the culture tells in TV shows and movies. Our culture disciples us to live for ourselves, to live for the self. See, Jesus here describes his discipleship program self denial, cross bearing. Well, you know what? Satan has his discipleship program too. He's trying to train you and program you to think a certain way as well. Satan has his great commission as well. And he wants to make each one of us as self-absorbed as possible. And I would say that in our culture, he's doing a pretty good job. The cultural imperative of the moment is go your own way. Do your own thing. Be your own boss. Live for your own fulfillment. Look out for number one. Jesus comes to us and says, go my way. Do my thing. Make me your boss. Make me your number one highest priority. See, the way of self-denial wasn't popular then. It's not popular now. It looks like death. It feels like death. It is death. And yet Jesus says it's the way of life. True life. Everlasting life. Glorious life. The culture says, be true to yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. The culture says, find yourself. Jesus says, lose yourself. The culture says, be your own man. Jesus says, you are not your own man. You were bought with a price. Now in a culture that worships self, If you say, I'm going to practice self-denial, that's considered sacrilegious. That's considered blasphemous. It is an attack on the God of our age, the God of self. But what is Jesus doing here? He's calling us to put to death the gods of our age. He's calling us to put to death, to break with and and to smash the, the false gods of our culture. Jesus calls us to die. To die to the world. To die to peer pressure. To die to cultural fads. To die to the idols that rule our world. Let me give you an example of this. Madonna. The pop singer. You probably didn't expect to come to church today and hear Madonna quoted. I read this years ago and I filed it away to save it for when I preached on this this passage. Alright? Uh, Madonna once said something very interesting. She said, I want to be like Gandhi, Martin Luther King, John Lennon, and Jesus. That's part of the quote. I'm going to read the rest of it to you in just a minute. She said she wanted to be like, she wants to be like all these famous people. Gandhi, 
Martin Luther King, John Lennon, Jesus. Why? Well, obviously because she saw each one of those men as living lives full of impact. Living world-changing, history-changing lives. We could question the wisdom of grouping them together. You know, you want to play which one doesn't really belong in this list kind of game. But she lumped them together. She saw them as having something vital in common. They all lived world-changing type lives. Of course, they all have something else in common as well. Uh, They all died tragic deaths. They were all murdered. Now listen to the full quote. She says, I want to be like Gandhi, Martin Luther King, John Lennon, and Jesus, but I want to stay alive. I want to be like Martin Luther King and Gandhi and John Lennon and Jesus, but I don't want to have to die. That's the lie of the world. In effect, what she's saying is, I want to have a huge impact. I want to live a a, a meaningful life, a world-changing kind of life, but I don't want to have to die. I don't want there to be any pain involved. I don't want there to be any sacrifice. I want to stay alive. Madonna speaks for the world. I mean, Madonna and Peter, at this point, are not too far apart. Peter's thinking the same thing. I want to change the world and I don't want to have to die to do it. That's the wisdom of the world. It's really no wisdom at all. Jesus reveals true wisdom when He shows us the only way to live is to die. The only way to change the world is to die to the world. The only way to become fully yourself is to deny yourself. See, this is what discipleship means. Being a disciple of Jesus, discipleship means living in a way that makes no sense to the world unless Jesus really is the Christ, unless He really is the King. It means understanding that Jesus wants all of you. He wants your mind. He wants your heart. He wants your imagination. He wants your body. He wants your wallet. He wants your calendar. Jesus wants... All of you. See, Jesus denied Himself and took up His cross for you. When you see that, when you see that's what Jesus has done, how can you not do the same for Him? God gave Himself for you. How can you not give yourself to God in return? Not to pay God back. That's foolish. You can't pay God back. But simply because you see how God loves you and how you love God in return. We love Him because He has first loved us. We take up our crosses because He first took up His cross. Now sadly, so much of the church today blunts the force of the message of Jesus here. It cheapens the cost of discipleship, to put it in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's terms. We soften the hard edges of God's Word. We downplay the requirements of discipleship. We turn them into the fine print at the bottom of the contract that nobody reads anyway. And you see this in churches where there's very little difference between how the people of God live and how the world around us lives. Where worship services are turned into times of amusement and entertainment. The cultural critic Neil Postman, uh, I think, gets at this well. He says, I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a serious and demanding religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. 
See, when you take away the hard edges, when you take away the force of what Jesus says here, you don't just lose a piece of the Christian message. You lose all of it. You know, people pointed out that Facebook has cheapened the meaning of the word friend. You know, because now you might have 700 friends on Facebook and they're not really friends because you never even met, you know, most of them and know virtually nothing about them. You know, Facebook in a lot of ways is cheap in the meaning of the word friend. I think in the same way, we can say that Twitter has ruined the meaning of the word follow. Because when you follow somebody on Twitter, what happens? You get these little bite-sized bits of information from them and 140 characters or less. Of course, you can't pack a whole lot of depth into that. So following somebody is it's a very low-cost kind of thing. You know, what's it mean to follow somebody? It means I might read a 140-character tweet from you every now and then. When Jesus talks about following Him, He's not talking about Twitter. He's not talking about that kind of following. He's not saying follow my Twitter feed. He's saying follow me with all of your life. William Willimon once said, you know, we want becoming a Christian to be like going to summer camp where it's just all fun and games. He said, really, it's more like joining the Marines. It's more like going to boot camp because Jesus takes over the whole of your life so you get retrained and reprogrammed. You get trained for war. And you learn how to make sacrifices for the good of the kingdom. Again, Bonhoeffer talks so much about this. He says, every Christian has his own cross waiting for him across destined and appointed by God. That is to say, every Christian has a set of sins he's going to have to deal with and a set of trials he's going to have to endure and a set of sacrifices he's going to be called upon to make. All perfectly apportioned by God in order to make each of us mature like Christ. In order to stretch us and strengthen us and build us to conform us to the image of of the crucified Christ. See, we live in an age and in a culture in which a lot of people want to be at least vaguely associated with Jesus. They like Jesus. They admire Jesus. But the question is not, do you like Jesus? Do you admire Jesus? The question is always, do you follow Jesus? I heard an interesting story not too long ago. Uh, there was a non-Christian woman who was being evangelized. And she was being evangelized by Christians who used a certain set of questions that they would ask. And so they asked this woman, if you died tonight and stood at the gates of heaven and you were asked, why should you be let in? What should you say? This woman said, you know, I really don't know. And so the evangelist went on to explain to her, well, the correct answer is, is to say, Jesus died for my sin." And the woman said, I hope I can remember that. Okay? In other words, for her, that, that gospel that she was given there was just a form of words to say when you're standing before the pearly gates. It wasn't anything life-changing. That's not the gospel. The gospel's not just words. It's not just a formula to recite at the pearly gates. It's not just a set of ideas or doctrines. The gospel is a person. It is the person of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Gospel. You trust Him, 
You trust Him alone with your salvation in the whole of your life. You follow Him, not just in a part of your life, but in the whole of your life. You trust in Jesus, and because you trust Him, you seek to follow Him. Again, there are just too many in our world who want Jesus as a consultant rather than a king. They want to use Jesus like a bus pass. You know, you swipe it when you get on the bus, and, and you know, and so you get on, and you take this free ride, you get this free ride to heaven. Jesus will not be your bus pass. He will not be your get out of hell free card. A profession of faith that makes no difference in your life will make no difference to God either. You can't just slot the Gospel in as one more thing in your life. Because when Jesus enters your life, He disrupts everything. He disrupts your agenda and your aspirations. Everything in your life is transformed by the Gospel. The Gospel transforms everything it touches. Taking up your cross means slaying self. It means killing your sin. It means repurposing and reorienting your life around Christ. Making Him the center around which you will orbit. So what does it look like on the ground? What does it look like in daily life? You know, certainly denying yourself and taking up your cross can look heroic. We might think of the early Christian martyrs who were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. Rather than deny their faith, Rather than confess Caesar is Lord, they said, no, Jesus is Lord. And they paid for it with the price of their blood. We might think of Christians in the Middle East or in other parts of the world today who suffer greatly for their faith, who are on the run, who, who don't have homes to live in anymore, who have lost family members to the persecution. But you know, it might be a lot more subtle than that. In fact, someone has said, I think rightfully, that in a world like ours, even an ordinary Christian is a very extraordinary thing. So what might it mean to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus? It might mean turning off the TV or walking out of the movie theater because of the garbage that's on the screen. It might mean staying in a less than happy marriage, a less than fulfilling marriage, because you know you made promises, and this is what Christ wants you to do. It might mean sacrificing a lucrative career in order to do mission work in a third world country. It might mean preaching against the sexual sins of the day, even if it's going to get you in trouble with City Hall. There are probably some pastors in Houston we could ask about that. It might mean not getting that promotion at work because you hold on to your integrity rather than fudge the numbers your boss wants you to. It might mean showing up for church on Sunday morning when you'd much rather sleep in or go play golf, especially on a nice day like today. It might mean having a painful conversation with someone, with a, with a brother or sister in Christ, because you need to tell them the truth about a problem, an issue in their life. I mean, opening up your home and showing hospitality to others, even people who you find particularly difficult to, to love. And you'd rather spend those resources and that time just with your own family, but you do it for others because you know you'll be blessing them. 
might mean serving others when you know it would be a whole lot easier just to do your own thing. It might mean being gracious when you've been snubbed or slighted or ignored or when people have forgotten to thank you. It might mean refusing to be ashamed of Christ and His truth even though they're incredibly unpopular. That's how this passage in Mark 8 ends with this warning, what will happen to those who are ashamed of Jesus. Never be ashamed of being a Christian. Never be ashamed of Christ and His cross. Never let what others think of you trump what Jesus thinks of you. Now, I know all this, you know, it's easy for this to kind of sound morbid. You know, what a downer. You know, what was the sermon about today? It was about death. uh, About how we have to die. Well, no, Jesus does talk about the resurrection here. And I want you to understand this. Even in this kind of dying, even right now, not just in, you know, not just on the other side of the resurrection, even right now in this kind of dying, there is great joy. There is life to be enjoyed and had. Even for those who deny themselves, right now there is joy. Even in the midst of the pain and sacrifice, there's a kind of glory. And you know, every generation of Christians bears witness to this, to the truth Jesus describes here. That in dying to yourself, you find yourself. In giving yourself up, you find true life. Every generation of Christians bears witness to this. The great joy there is in pouring your life out for Christ and others probably know the name at least, David Livingstone, the great pioneer pioneer, uh, missionary who spent most of his life in Africa. This is what he said towards the end of his life. He said, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. That is, this office of being a missionary to the Africans. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. It is emphatically no sacrifice Rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger now and then, foregoing the common conveniences of this life, all those may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this be so only for a moment. All those are nothing when compared with the glory being revealed in us. He concludes by saying, I never made a sacrifice. Here's a man who gave everything up. And at the end of it all, he says, I didn't make a sacrifice. Because he saw how Christ had just piled on the blessing and the joy. I'm sure a lot of you know the name Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India for 55 years. Her biographer, who knew her very, very well, said this. Amy Wilson Carmichael was the most Christ-like character I ever met. Her life was the most fragrant, the most joyfully sacrificial I ever knew. Joyfully sacrificial. What a beautiful way to describe the Christian life, what Jesus is talking about here. It is hard. It is hard to say no to yourself, to deny yourself. But there is no place in the Christian life for self-pity. There is nothing more ultimately satisfying, fulfilling, rewarding, glory-giving than a life poured out 
in deeds of service for Christ and for the sake of others. Indeed, Booker T. Washington, one of the greatest Americans to ever live, he should be well known to us in this state, Booker T. Washington said this, I began learning long ago that those who are happiest are those who do the most for others. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be joyful? Do you want to have life that is truly life? Well, here's the secret. Die to self. Say no to self. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Say no to yourself so you can say yes to a life of service, a life of cross-bearing, because that's true life. That's the joyful life. The way of the cross is the way of joy. The way of the cross is the way to victory. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that in Christ Jesus and His death on the cross, You have inaugurated Your kingdom and You have shown us the way of life in this kingdom. May we live accordingly. May we trust in Jesus and may we follow Jesus. May we deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Him, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.